In a little time in the Old Testament, as we're continuing our study on the book of uh, I'm sorry, the book, uh, the study of prayer in the book of Psalms. Sorry, that got confusing. Yeah, the book of prayer. Uh, as we're continuing our study on prayer, we've been looking primarily at Paul's descriptions of his prayers. I'd like to spend the next two weeks, today and next week, Lord willing, looking at Old Testament examples of prayer, and there's probably no more beautiful place to look for Old Testament prayers than the book of Psalms. Because in the 150 songs of the Hebrew Psalter, it is just, all of, not all of them, but many of them are just dripping with prayers. In fact, many of them are absolutely, from beginning to end, just prayers. And so to appropriately listen to these inspired prayers. Now, it's important at the same time that we understand them in their context. So we're going to have to spend our time looking at their context as well, because if we don't, we can easily uh, go off the rails very quickly. So we're going to do that this morning. But let's have a word of prayer before we get started in our study on prayer. Lord, help us this morning as we look in Psalm chapter 5, that we will have enlightened eyes, that we will understand, and that we'll understand many different things about you and about how we communicate with you, what an amazing blessing it is that we are able to talk to you and that you actually listen as you have said. And so, Lord, I pray that you will help us this morning as we consider Psalm 5, that we will hear and that we will examine this prayer in light of you, in light of ourselves, that we will examine our praying in light of what you say. And so, Lord, I pray that you will help us to be captivated by the God that we pray to. Glorify yourself this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. Psalm chapter 5. Let's read through it and then we will begin our discussion. Starting in verse 1 of Psalm 5. <clears throat> to the choir master for the flute, the Psalm of David. Could I just pause on that just for a second? I think I've said this before, but just a point of clarification. If you look at the top of your heading on Psalm chapter 5, you will notice that it opens with that statement that I just read. Most times we ignore those statements, but those are inspired statements. When you see it italicized, a lot of your translations will italicize some things in the beginning. Like in my, in my version, it says, lead me in your righteousness, in italics. That was the producers of the ESV that gave that as a title of the chapter. That's their, their thoughts on the chapter. When you see it italicized like that, it's not inspired, it's just given as a help. Does that make sense? But right after that, to the choir master for the flute, the Psalm of David, is inspired. That's why it's not italicized. It is in the Hebrew. Uh, in this case, um, to the choir master implies something. It implies it is to be sung at worship. The choir is to lead the entire congregation in worship in this song. When he says for the flute, it, that basically just means it's a... It, it, it more sticks in the, in the treble realm of things than in the bass realm of things, is what it basically means. And then a psalm of David, it's a song that was written by King David. Whether it was before he was a king or while he was a king, uh, it's written by uh, David. So those are inspired statements. They're instructions to the, to the Hebrew people as they approach the psalm. It continues... Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. 
O Lord, in the morning You hear My voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for You. And watch. For You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with You. The boastful shall not stand before Your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of Your steadfast love, will enter Your house. I will bow down toward Your holy temple in the fear of You. Lead me, O Lord, in Your righteousness because of my enemies. Make Your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their innermost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Make them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against You. But let all who take refuge in You rejoice. Let them, I'm sorry, let them ever sing for joy and spread Your protection over them for those who love Your name may exalt in You. Or I'm sorry, that those who love Your name may exalt in You. For You bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Now let me, let me just say, this morning we are in Psalm chapter 5, and you've heard me say many times before, and you've heard Andrew say as well, that these songs are inherently Christological. That is, they are on Christ. They are talking about Jesus in very real ways. We are not going to examine that aspect of Psalm 5 this morning. That does not mean that we're denying that that's existence. It's just that we're focused on what this prayer is actually about and where the focus of the prayer is and the goal and purpose of the prayer. Does that make sense? I'm certainly not minimizing that Christological approach. I'm just not going to address that this morning because of our focus. That's for another time. Um, It is interesting, um, though, at the same time that we could uh, recognize something very interesting. Um, What you have here is you have um, an interesting study in contrasts. And this is about the only place that I'm going to touch on, on Christ in this, in this psalm. But you have an interesting study on, on, in contrast in this prayer. You can call it a psalm because it is. It's also a prayer. It's a study in contrast between righteous and wicked, right? Or unrighteous. The righteous and the unrighteous. The righteous and the wicked. That's what the total prayer, the total psalm is about. Now ultimately, and this is where I, I will touch on to Christ just to prime the pump for future, is when we, whenever you read in the Psalms uh, this kind of contrast, which you see regularly in the Psalms, this study and contrast between the righteous and the unrighteous, or the righteous and the wicked, we must understand, and it's important even in our study this morning, that ultimately the only righteous one is Christ. And you'll even recognize it if you really carefully listen to the Psalms that David acknowledges at the same time that he talks about his contrast, the contrast of him with, with, the unwicked, with the wicked or the unrighteous, at the same time, you will recognize that David is falling upon the mercy of God. Because he is not, he's not in any way saying, I have arrived. Otherwise, he wouldn't have to call for God's mercy. So it's really important we see that because truly and accurately, the only righteous one is Jesus. 
And the only way that we could be considered as righteous at all, and David, pre the death and resurrection of Christ, even the incarnation of Christ, the only way that David could be considered righteous at all is if he has Christ's righteousness. That's his hope. As he's looking forward to the to the coming Messiah that has been prophesied, that has been promised. His only hope is the Redeemer that is yet to come. What we're going to do through this text, though, is we're going to just unpack a little bit each, each verse. So we're going to walk our way through it. I'm going to try to avoid doing an autopsy on the text. Uh, I hope it's not autopsy-esque. I hope it's more alive as we work our way through the text. But I think this text tells us a whole lot about prayer. It's important, again, that we, that we see it in its context. And it's only when we see it in its context it will make sense to us. Because if we don't see it in its context, it will, on one level, really chafe against us. And rightfully so. And on another level, it will lead us down the wrong path and a wrong way of thinking about prayer. And it will be in contrast. If we don't understand it in its context, it will be in contrast with everything I just said. But in context, it doesn't do that at all. So let's walk our way through it. I'll try to clarify that as we work our way through. He starts out in verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. That's the only thing we know about David's situation. Something's going on. Correct? And the evidence something's going on is what? He's groaning. And so in his time of difficulty, whatever that difficulty is, if you know the story of David, you know there were plenty of those. Some were brought on by sin. Some were brought on by his righteousness or his love for God. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. So as we walk our way through it, the first thing we can recognize is David's going through some sort of pretty important difficulty, and his response to his difficulty, his response to his groaning is what? Crying out to the Lord. Now it's interesting, this is kind of a radical thought, but I want you to notice this. In verse 1, do you notice this? It's as if he's commanding God to do something, is he not? That's uncomfortable, isn't it? It shouldn't be, but it is. It is not in the form of a request. God, I ask you. That's not what it says, does it? It doesn't say, God, I ask you to hear my words or give ear to my words. It says, give ear to my words. It's interesting. Now, that probably sounds really weird to you and me. It shouldn't. If you go over to the Lord's Prayer, what do you find? The same exact thing. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's not, will you please hallow your name, make your name hallowed. It's a command, hallow your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Another command. Give us this day our daily bread is a command. It is an imperative. And lead us not into temptation. Command. Deliver us from evil. Command. Those, they're all commands. Now, some people, in, some theologians in, uh, that do a lot of genre studies have argued, Andrew and I have talked about this, have argued that uh, in the, what's called pr- the prayer genre, when you see an imperative or a command stated, it is a command of request. And I look at that and say, where do you get that from? 
because that 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 frankly, as I've dialogued with theologians who are into the whole genre studies, they're grabbing it out of thin air. Why? Because they're really uncomfortable with making commands to God. They're very uncomfortable with giving commands or commanding God to do something. Why? Why would we be uncomfortable? Because I would bet that we were all kind of uncomfortable with this statement. It's a command. Why would we be uncomfortable with commanding God to do something? But why are we, the, the point, the question, I think you're missing my question here. You're right. But why would we be uncomfortable with it? Because because we're commanding God. And that's really uncomfortable because who am I and who is God, right? God is God and I'm not. So it feels really uncomfortable and really weird and really wrong even, doesn't it? To say that the psalmist here is commanding God to do something. And it's it feels wrong even when we look, when as I just mentioned, the Lord's Prayer, it feels really wrong to command God to even do the things that are in the Lord's Prayer, what's called the Lord's Prayer. But yet God tells us what? Christ tells us what? Pray in this way, doesn't He? Now, at minimum, we have to acknowledge that in this command format, this imperative format that we have, it's certainly, you get the, you get the intent, don't you? You get the feeling that, that there's a confidence in David as he, as he prays this way? Just sense of real confidence? Right? In the Lord's Prayer, if you really think it through, isn't there a real confidence portrayed in, that sta- in those statements? Well, yes. A dramatic confidence, which causes me to ask myself, and I hope causes you to ask yourself right away, is that kind of confidence perking up in my praying? Is that kind of confidence in God perking up? If not, and I suspect for most of it, the answer is it's not. If not, why not? That's a really important question as we start off just verse 1. If not, why not? Why aren't we that kind of confidence? It's interesting, I find in my praying too often, and when I listen to other people pray too often, I hear prayers that are full of, if I use the term, fudges to give God a way out. An excuse, almost. Why? David doesn't pray that way. Jesus certainly didn't teach to pray that way. Paul didn't pray that way. Did he? Well, no. Now, there is an exception we talked about last week, right? As the Lord wills. If, if we don't have both, ob- if you weren't here last week, we talked about the two objects of faith. The first object was what? Anybody? The character of God, who God is as revealed in the Scriptures. Have, our faith must have that as the object. Therefore, our praying in faith must have that as the object. Who God is. There also must be a, this is just a review if you were here last week, but many of you were not. There also must be a second object of faith in our praying. And the second object of faith was what? What he said about his will, his plan. Right? In the Scriptures. In order for praying to be prayers of faith, it must have both objects. If a prayer is, and by the way, when I say it must have the first object, the first object, the idea is having Christ as the object means who He is as He's revealed Himself and all that resulting in 
for His glory. Okay? As I consider Him and pray in light of what He said about Himself, by the way, if I may just throw that out, if I'm praying in light of what He said about Himself, it precludes me praying for Aunt Melba's big toe just so that she doesn't feel painful anymore. Do you realize that? Because that's not character of God stuff. That's horizontal, it's not vertical. The second, of obje- second object of faith, again, just review, the second object of faith is what He has revealed about His plan, His program, His will. You must have both. And when I have both, I have any prayers that I pray that have both those in light, I can approach the throne, if I use the term, boldly. Why? Because it's consistent with who God is, and it's consistent with what, he, with what He's revealed. And if I don't have the second one, consistent with what He's revealed, the best I can pray is, as James 4 describes it, if the Lord wills. And that is a prayer of faith, because there is an object, right? But as we said last week, when I pray if the Lord wills, which means that God didn't say anything about the very specific thing I'm praying, I'm, in other words, fine with the idea that if it doesn't come to fruition, that's okay too. You realize that? I'm content with that as well. And if I'm not content with that as well, then perhaps, and we probably ought to remove the word perhaps out of there, what I really ought to be praying instead of that thing is I ought to be praying that God will change my heart so that I will discover contentment in Christ. Philippians chapter 4. It changes everything. Those two objects of faith. Very important. If you weren't here last week, I'd really encourage you to go back and listen to that. And we'll mention that again in the future. But here, he, he prays very confidently. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groanings. Both of those are absolute, emphatic, imperative statements. <clears throat> well, how could he do that? I would present to you, he can pray that way because it's consistent with what God has revealed about himself in many different ways. Has the scripture revealed that God listens? Yes. The scriptures are very clear. God hears. He is able to hear. But not only that, when he prays, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groanings, what's he praying in regard to? Now this is that contextual thing that we need to understand. And we need to understand it all the way through Psalm 5 as well as throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And that is, what David is praying in light of is the book of Deuteronomy. In all the years that I've understood and continue to grow in my understanding of Deuteronomy, one of the things I've become convinced of the entire Old Testament from, from Deuteronomy onwards is forever looking back on Deuteronomy. In other words, Deuteronomy explains Psalms. Deuteronomy explains Job. Deuteronomy explains Habakkuk. Deuteronomy explains Malachi. Name any book. Deuteronomy explains it. It absolutely explains it. 
It brings the context. It brings the understanding to it. How could David pray in such a demanding way to God, hear me, consider my groanings, wrestle with my groanings? Well, because Deuteronomy tells David, informs David as a covenantal person, a person who is in general, in general, obviously not perfectly, but he is striving to be faithful to the God of the covenant by striving to follow the covenant. Now he fails, right? I mean, can't get much further than Bathsheba. <coughs> and ultimately he knows, and it shows in the text, that ultimately he's failing. But the reason why he can confidently look to Deuteronomy is not because he's so perfectly following the law, but because he's loving the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, Deuteronomy 6. And when there's failings in that, he does what? He repents. Psalm 51, for example. It's in light of that that God said for those, and also one more thing, he is one who clearly throughout all the Psalms is clearly looking forward to, as I've already said, the coming Messiah. He knows it's his only hope. He's a coming Messiah that's going to deal with the dilemma, the, the conundrum, the dilemma, the unsolvable dilemma that he is in. It's in light of that that David, in a introductory way, can live with a confidence in God that he is a recipient of the blessings of the book of Deuteronomy and not the curses. See, for David, as one who is pursuing God, seeking to glorify God, banking on the promises of a coming Redeemer, as a result of that, he is one, and trusting in that Redeemer who has not yet come to deal with his, his dilemma, his sin, the blessings that God promised are available to him. And the curses are not applied. Yes, even though the Messiah had not yet come. The blessings were available to him that were promised for those who are faithful, who love the Lord their God. The curses would not be applied to him. And there are many of those. And so as a result of that, some of the blessings were that God would listen to them. You can read the blessings of Deuteronomy, they're really clear. Some of them are striking. And so as a result of that, what is David doing in his prayer? He's basically saying, because I am one depending upon the Messiah that is promised, looking forward to the Messiah who is promised, longing for the Messiah that, is, that has been promised, I can confidently say to God, hear this prayer. Give ear to my words. There's an absolute confidence based on what? What God said about Himself, His faithfulness to His promises. He promised blessings and cursings, but for David, as he knew the, the book of Psalm, the book of, uh, of Deuteronomy, he knew that by faith he was in the blessings category, and so he could cry out to God confidently about this. Now, at this point in time, all he's saying is, "Hear me." He goes on in verse 2, give attention to the sound of my cry, continuing verse 1, and notice what he says next. 
my King and my God. For to you I pray. This is an interesting statement. The, the, the second and third line in verse 2, he says, my King and my God. When he says, my King, what is he talking about? What is he, what is he implying there very strongly? There's several things. He's not, first of all, he's not king, right? David, king David is not king. Interesting, isn't it? What else, is it? what else does it mean? Help me out. What other, what other thoughts? He is of that kingdom. My king. This echoes in a very interesting way when he says, my king, and I'll throw it in here to combine it together, my king and my God. It echoes in a very real way pre-kingdom, Israeli kingdom being, Israel kingdom, kingdom being established, Rahab, doesn't it? When she talked to the spies, your God is the true God. And then she goes on to declare that their God is her God. And as a result, she demands that they treat, him, treat her with covenant loyalty, which is all really intriguing. Kind of a, 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 a echo of that all the way down to David here. He says, my king, which means I'm not, even though he really is, he's not king. God is king. He's my king. And in reality, what David is saying, he says, my king, he's saying, I'm your servant. I'm your subject. I'm submissive. What? Yes, absolutely. He is absolutely worthy of this position that I acknowledge I am in. And my God. He is my King. My God. He's my absolute authority. To you and you alone I look. That's what he's saying. Now this is a really interesting statement because he says, My King and my God, for to you do I pray. Do you recognize in that statement, the second and third line of verse 2, the absolute exclusivity of his statement? Do you hear it? It is absolutely exclusive. You alone are my king. You alone are my God. For to you and to you only do I pray. Or do I cry out for help? That's an intriguing statement, isn't it? This is not God and. This is not, I look to God and I look to other things as well. He says, to you alone. You're it. In other words, David is saying, I am so looking to you that if you don't hear, I am doomed. It's almost like you could say, if I may play with this a little bit, not in a funny way. You are my king and you are my God. I only look to you for happiness. I, say, I use that term very specifically because it's very applicable to us today, isn't it? And that's really what he's getting. He's not happy where he's at, is he? You hear it. He's crying out to God. He's, he's, his, his, his groaning is going on. He's not happy. And he says, to you alone do I turn. And if you fail me, I've looked elsewhere nowhere. I look nowhere. You're my only hope. Now, 
it's it. I say this because it is intriguing in our, in our world today. What do we do? We're God and, aren't we? All the time? It's God and. We hedge our bats, don't we? God and. You can go anywhere with that. It's almost always God and, God and, God and. I'm not saying that, that it's not appropriate, for example, with Aunt Mel's week, so I'm not saying it's not appropriate to go to the doctor. That's not what I'm trying to say. But where's her hope? Right? You follow me what I'm saying? Where's her hope? What are we banking on? What is our hope and where is our hope centered? Both of those are very important. To you do I pray. Verse 3. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. You hear his confidence. Did you hear that in verse 3? The opening phrase of verse 3? O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. That does not just mean He speaks. His confidence is that He actually hears. And then He goes on in verse 3, In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Intriguing statement. I've been saying intriguing a lot, but it's an intriguing statement. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. So he's praying and he's sacrificing to God. Which is another way of talking about he's worshiping. In the morning, I'm worshiping God. I'm sacrificing. I'm praying. It's worship. Old Testament, classic worship. I'm sacrificing to God and I'm praying to God. In the morning, you hear my voice. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you. But what's very interesting is what he says next. Two words. And what? And watch. That's an interesting statement. He prays. Now I want to challenge our thinking a little bit on this because this is pretty intriguing. We pray too often. I'm, I'm being general here. But we'll pray about something. We'll throw it out there. And what do we do next? After the prayer is over, we, we move on with our day. Don't we? Could I just ask you a quick question? You pray in the morning. Let's say you pray in the morning. You pray in the morning, and then you go have your breakfast. Is your prayer still perking in your, in your mind? Then you go to work. Is your prayer still perking in your mind? You're driving to work. Is your prayer still perking in your mind? And, and, and by the way, it's not just your prayer. He's not just watching for the fulfillment of the prayer. He's watching for... The God who fulfills. He's watching, could I say it this way? He's watching with spiritual eyes for God to work. His expectancy is dramatically lived out through his day. And if you think, well, but Steve, and I hear this all the time of you, but our day is, my day is just so complicated and so busy and it's so. So convoluted all day long with all this mess I got to deal with with my bosses and my customers and and my uh, my my suppliers and 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 traffic and and problems in the family and and on and on and on. Are you kidding? This is King David. I think his life's a little more complicated than ours. Wouldn't you say? His life is tough. He's leading a kingdom of 12 tribes 
who, by the way, the Scriptures say, have always been stiff-necked. That's the tribe. That's the, that's the country he's leading. And he doesn't have absolute authority like the Assyrians or the Egyptians or the Syrians do, the kings. He doesn't have that at all. Who's the king? God is. And here, David starts out praying confidently that God will hear about his groanings and the sound of his cry. And so as a result, he prays and he prepares a sacrifice and he watches. The same, same word shows up in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1, very interestingly. Totally opposite of this. Habakkuk, interestingly enough, is later on, obviously. And Habakkuk is um, praying to God. Chapter 1. He's praying to God and he's saying, God, <laughs> what, why aren't you dealing with Israel? They're in rebellion against you. Why do you not move? What is Habakkuk praying about? He's praying about, God, I know what you've revealed about yourself, and it doesn't make any sense. You're not dealing with these people. That's not consistent with your character. So Habakkuk is like aggressive with God. First object of faith. Second object of faith. He's also addressing what God has said about how he will deal with the people. Deuteronomy again. And God responds to him. And he says, you're right, Habakkuk. You're right. The people of Israel are really, really wicked. And so I'm going to deal with them in just a little bit. And here's my way of dealing with them. I'm going to raise up the Assyrian army. And they're going to come down and they're going to wipe everybody out. And Habakkuk hears this and says, what? Then Habakkuk goes off the rails. He absolutely goes off the rails. Because he speaks to God and says, that can't be. As bad and as evil as the Israelites are, the Assyrians are a whole lot worse. And he's right. They are. But that's not acknowledging who God is. And that God can use whatever means He wants to. As He already revealed in the Scriptures. And so at the end of Habakkuk, chapter 2, Habakkuk says, now that I've told God that He's wrong, in effect that's what he's saying, I'm going to sit back and watch. He's going to watch God correct this. And the idea is he's going to sit there expectantly, God coming back somehow and saying, yeah, you're right. But he's, going to, he's, he's saying, I'm focused on this. I, I'm absolutely consumed with this until God comes through on this. And God does come through chapter 3 and said, no, you missed the point. <laughs> you missed the point. I can do what I want to do. And I will deal with the Assyrians. And I am a holy God. And Habakkuk at the end gives that beautiful benediction in light of that truth when he says, even though the fig tree does not blossom and there is no fruit in the field, I will still, and all the rest, and he says, I still will trust in God my Savior. Wow. But he waits. And the picture comes up over and over and over in the Scripture. This active, it's not a passive waiting that I forget about. It's very much a focused waiting on God to do what is consistent with His character and what He has revealed in the Scriptures. A very strong watch. 
it, by the way, in the Old Testament, the word watch also shows up. This is the second way and most common way that it shows up. The watch is very much a military term. It's the people that are stationed on the walls watching out for enemy. They're on watch. We still use the term today. You ever go on watch? Yeah. I mean, that's part of being in the military. Is that time to go to sleep, Ken? Time to read a book? No smoking? <laughs> no anything, right? You have one task and one task only. And that's watch for the enemy, right? And you're, you better be consumed with that. Because otherwise you're not watching, right? The picture is watching. And by the way, the New Testament uses the same term. And I think in the right way. Watch and pray. Or how about the ten virgins? Five are watching. For who? For the groom to come. And five are what? Doing everything else. That watching is very aggressive. It's very active. Making sure there's oil in the lamp. Looking down the road. Is he coming? Is he coming? There's an expectation. A longing. That's the idea. And David is absolutely saying that. An expectation that God will hear and respond and He's watching for it. Again, based upon what God has said about Himself, based upon what God has revealed about His plan. Verse 4. And then it becomes very interesting. Verse 4. You'd expect Him to offer more specific prayer requests. More dialed in specific like you know, Aunt Melba's big toe type prayer requests. Perhaps. But no, what does He do? In verse 4 and following, He turns to, in His prayer, who God is. Is. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. What did he just do? For three verses, what did God do? What did David do? He rehearsed what God had already revealed about Himself. Now some of that's reminder to Himself, right? He's reminding Himself of who God is. Oh boy, that's a beautiful exercise, isn't it? But He's also reminding God of who He is. He's praying to Him. God, this is what You said about Yourself. And so the implication we get from 4 through 6 is that whoever is causing this groaning in David, this difficulty in David, they're, they're these evil people, aren't they? And so he's calling God, verses 1 through 3, to hear him, give attention to his prayers. He's sacrificing and watching. Why? Because this is who you are, God. Now that becomes really interesting. If I may go back to Aunt Melba's big toe with regard to how we typically pray not for God's glory or for, for the advancement of His kingdom, but just because we're concerned about Aunt Melba and her big toe, the prayer then would be changed to this in verse 4 through 6. For you are not a God who delights in sickness or painful toes. 
painful toes may not dwell with you. The painful toe shall not stand before your eyes or those who have painful toes. You hate all painful toes. You destroy any painful toes. The Lord abhors painful toes. That's pretty bizarre, isn't it? Isn't that silly? And we know it's silly. Why? Because we know that's not God. Right? Now you may say, that's not really an accurate reworking of the verse, is it? Yeah, it is. Because when we're praying for Aunt Mel's big toe all the time, just so she doesn't have the painful toe anymore, we're saying God really hates painful toes. So God, fix it. Because certainly you don't like painful toes. It's really kind of weird. No, but what does he say instead? For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. You're not a God who delights in people living in a way contrary to, first of all, who you are. And secondly, you do not delight in people who live in such a way that's contrary to what you revealed about your will, your plan. Or to put it a different way, you do not delight, you are not a God who delights in people who don't acknowledge you as my King and my God. That's what he says. That's who he is. Who are the boastful? The boastful, first of all, we see, shall not stand before your eyes, David says. But who are the boastful? Those who are not, verse 2. And 3. They're boastful. Why? Because if God's not my king, something or someone else must be, right? If God is not my God, if Yahweh is not my God, then something or someone else must be. And ultimately, you know as well as I do who it is. Don't we? It's me. So I boast in other things. David acknowledges, you destroy those who speak lies. Well, am I not speaking lies if I'm not acknowledging him as king? I have to. Because I'm declaring something else or someone else's king. Declaring something else or someone else's God. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Verse 7. David in his prayer turns the, the in that contrast from wickedness to righteousness. But I... Notice, he's talking about himself now in his prayer. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter into your house. Interesting. It's really easy to say, wow, isn't he kind of arrogant? That's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? He's declaring emphatically he's going to enter into the Lord's house, isn't he? But notice what he says right in the middle. But I, through the abundance of your what? Steadfast love, or what does your translation say? Loving kindness. I'll bet Jim, the King James says loving kindness. Mercy. Okay, mercy is acceptable as well. Any of these are acceptable. The idea, the, the, the word there is that Hebrew word you heard it mentioned before, chesav. Most beautiful word in the entire Old Testament. Your covenant loyalty. What is he saying? 
But I will enter into your presence. I will enter into your house via your covenant loyalty, your covenant mercy, your covenant loving kindness, the abundance of your steadfast love. What's he talking about? He's talking about the promises of his covenant that he's cut with the people. Because of your loyalty to your promises, I will be able to enter your house. I am not like these wicked ones because of what you have done and are doing in me. I will enter into your presence because you are a merciful and faithful God to what you've declared. You sense that David's focus is upon what God has said? He goes on, I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Acknowledgement once again of who God is and who He is. I will bow down is talking about worship. Fear is an aspect of worship. Recognizing His immensity of who He is. Verse 8, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. What is that part of the prayer all about? You know what David just acknowledged? Left to my own devices, where am I going to go? Where am I going to go? Into wickedness, aren't I? Left to my own devices, I'm going to be wicked just like everyone else. And so he cries out to God. Interestingly enough, his initial cry here in 7 and 8 is not automatically take away the difficulty, is it? Is it? Take away the groaning. Is that what 7 and 8 is all about? No. Take away the reason for my cry. Is that what it's all about? No. What's his primary prayer smack dab almost in the middle of of this of this psalm, which is very important, by the way. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. An acknowledgement once again, if you don't lead me there, I'm never getting there. What I need, David is praying more than anything else, is to be led by you because I am absolutely blind to that. I need you to lead me in your righteousness. That's why he says, because of my enemies. Lead me, in, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Why? Because all these enemies around me and attacking me, if he doesn't lead me in righteousness, I'm going to what? What's the natural way of man? What's that? Wickedness, generally, yes. What did you say, Jim? Fail. Absolutely. He's going to get... What happens with us, right? When wickedness comes upon us, left our own devices, we get bitter. We get wicked back. We get hateful back. We attack. We get vicious. Isn't that the way of mankind in our fallen states? It absolutely is. So David's primary prayer is not remove all this from me. It is lead me in your righteousness. Can you imagine if you're talking to Aunt Melba and she's saying, could you pray for me about my big toe? Absolutely. God, let's let's pray, Aunt Melba. And you start to pray. You say, God, I pray more than anything else that through the pain in her big toe, you'll lead her into righteousness. 
You know what? Most people are going to look at you how? Like you're nuts. Most Christians are going to look at you like you're an insanity case. Because that's not what they asked you to pray about, is it? Is that even close to what they asked you to pray about? No, they asked you to pray about their big toe. My goodness, if we prayed according to the Scriptures, we'd be saying, God, what Aunt Melba needs more than anything else is that this big toe problem will be used by you to bring her into more righteousness. That she'll find her great satisfaction to be you and you alone. Because her pain in her big toe is reminding her of her King and her God. If she's a believer. Right? And if she's not a believer, our perspective ought to be what she needs is what? To be a believer. What she needs is to have God be her God and her King. So he prays. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because I know I'm doomed otherwise. This is what I need. Who cares if God takes David from his problem? So he's no more groaning because of all these difficulties coming after him. Who cares if God does that if he's not brought into God's righteousness? At the end of the day, what difference does it make? Right? I mean, I hope we believe that. Who cares? At the end of the day, what difference does it make? It makes no difference at all. Because I'll tell you this, when we stand before God and, 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 and He says to us, well, you know, all those difficulties were in your life. I took them all away. But I didn't bring you into righteousness. But that's okay. Is He going to say that? No, quite to the contrary. He's going to say what? I put all those things in your life to bring you into righteousness, to point out your need for me. To show you how much you needed me. And in your idolatry, in your wickedness, all you were after were what? Was what? Relief. I was just a Pepto-Bismol to you. I was just an Alka-Seltzer. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief it is. That's not God. Alka-Seltzer serves you. Doesn't it? Alka-Seltzer serves you. God is not pleased to take away difficulties apart from bringing people into righteousness. And many times He doesn't take them away because they're tools to bring people into righteousness. So David prays again, lead me in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. And please don't miss the point. He's not, when he says make your way straight before me, he's not talking about removing all these enemies and all these difficulties. That's what he's talking about. You know what he's saying? I can't even see the path by myself of righteousness into righteousness. 
make the path of righteousness straight. Idea of straight is what? Seen, clear. Make the path of righteousness straight. Can't see it. And he's and again, it is a imperative. It's an imperative he's declaring here. Make it straight. Why? Because God promised to. I mean, can we not miss it in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 it's mentioned? Referencing back to Deuteronomy again. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will what? Make your, straight, make your path straight. He promises it. <laughs> that, that path is into righteousness. He moves on to verse 9, again, continuing this contrast, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their innermost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue, building off of verses 4 through 6. This contrast between righteousness and wickedness. What, what he's talking about in verse 9 is he's talking about people who probably are, in fact, I can almost guarantee it, are covenant people. That is, they are recipients of the covenant of Deuteronomy. But they are people only deserving of blessings or cursings? Curses. There is no truth in their mouth. These other people, these people coming after David, are people who have no truth. They don't know the truth. The truth is not in their lives. The truth is not percolating out of their lives. It is clear by their manner of life, by their communication, by the direction of their life, that there is no truth in them. Their innermost self is destruction. What does that mean? When he says their innermost self is destruction, it's talking covenantally again. When they're living this way, all that's left of them is what? Curses again. Well, that's destruction. So their inner self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. What they offer does not point to God. Their, their, what, their, what their throat is proclaiming is look elsewhere. Can I just pause now for a second? Can I just say this? When we freely take those prayer requests, if I may say it this way, and pray for them the way they want to be prayed for, the way we so often want to be prayed for, do you realize that's what we are? Our throats are an open grave because we're encouraging them to remain there. We're not pointing them to God. We're not praying them toward God. We're just praying to fix the horizontal stuff. That's, that's, open, that's throat is open grave stuff. That's heart, heart is, or their innermost self is destruction. Because they're not praying according to the two objects. So the result is destruction. Then finally, in verse 10, we come to the next imperative after this description of evil, of the wicked, of the unrighteous. Verse 10, Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Boy, there's a, a rip in prayer, isn't it? Is that not a, a, a powerful request? Are you a little uncomfortable with that request? Yeah, it's the same thing. You're absolutely correct, Rusty. He prays, he says what? God, I pray that you will destroy them. That's what he's praying. It's a radical prayer. It's radical. 
That's what he means. He says, make them bear their guilt, O God. Bring curses upon them. That's what he's praying. Bring the curses you promised to do upon them, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. In other words, what they're counseling that's contrary to you, let those very counsels consume them. So that they are destroyed. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. Boy, there's a pretty radical statement. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them, what it means, cast them out? It's talking about cast them out of the covenant. That's the idea. Cast them out of the covenant. Which means all they get is curses with no hope. For they have rebelled against you. How can David pray that prayer? Boy, talk about an uncomfortable prayer. How can he pray that way? Because God promised that's what he'd do. The curses of Deuteronomy. He's just saying, God, do what you promised to do. Now, can I just submit this? David here is not praying that God will do what he promised to do for his removal of his groaning. That is clearly evident. He's talking the whole time about God's character, isn't he? He is not in any way saying, God, serve me. In verse 10. You know, he's, you know what he's praying? It's simple. In this very powerful, what we would say today, crazy prayer, he's saying, glorify yourself. And he knows the way that God glorifies himself is how? By meeting out the curse. And showing his holiness, his kingliness, his godness. Meet out the, the curses you promised to meet out. That's what he prays on his enemies. Why? Because they're enemies? No, but because they're unrighteous people. Because they're unrighteous. Now, again, we've got to take these in light of the Old Testament covenant. <laughs> I'm not sure we have that kind of boldness in the New Testament economy to pray that way. There's some veiled places where you see it, but, but there are some places. <laughs> but more often than not, in the, in the New Testament economy, it is more if the Lord wills. Verse 11, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. And by the way, when you see the word let in the Scriptures, it is almost always an imperative. So here's another imperative. The idea when he says, let all who take refuge in you rejoice, he's in effect really saying, cause. Cause, God. Cause all who take refuge in you to rejoice. Let them forever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you. Now it's really easy to read verse 11 and say, well, there it is, Steve. Pray, pray for protection. There it is, right? So no more problems. Right? Correct? No, not correct. Not correct by any stretch of the imagination. When he prays here and spread your protection over them, it again goes back to Deuteronomy. It's that, that covenant that God cut with Israel, one of which he said was, for example, there will be peace for those who are, are faithful to God. And follow His commandments. 
There'll be peace internally, and there'll be peace on the borders. That was a promise of God. As an example, if I may give an example, when they came up on the when the when the Hebrew people came up on the east side of the Jordan River and came up to to uh, or east side of the Dead Sea and they came up to the Jordan River, they already had two victories, correct? And they were victories over foes that they there's no way they could have conquered, but they conquered them anyway because God blessed them, and they were the initial parts of the Promised Land. Well, at this point in time, they had part of the Promised Land, the eastern side for the two and a half tribes, but all around that land were enemies. Correct? All around that land were enemies that God told them, don't touch them, because that's not your land. And now, through God through Moses says, here's what's going to happen. We're going to cross the Jordan River, and all of those in the two and a half tribes that are on the east side of the Jordan River, your, all your fighting men are going to lead the way into battle. What did I just say? There's enemies all around them. Correct? Enemies all the way on, on the east, north, and south. Well, not quite south, but east and, east and north. Enemies. Powerful enemies. And God through Moses just said, all the fighting men of those two and a half tribes are going to lead in the battle. It's going to be a five-year-plus battle. And they're going to lead in this battle. Now think about this. Wrap it in your minds. If, if you're part of that two and a half tribes, you're saying, wait a second, Let's say you're a woman or an old person in that, or a child in that two and a half tribes. And God, through Moses, says now all the fighting men, which means that the two and a half tribes will not have any fighting men. They will have no warfare capability. None. As we cross the Jordan River, all the fighting men from those two and a half tribes are going to lead the way. And they're going to stay with us all the time until the war is over. But wait a second, Moses. If we do that... We're going to lose the land we just won and all of our relatives, our wives, the old people, the children, all our livestock, everything we own will be destroyed in an instant. The enemy all around is not stupid. Are they? Well, no. Or are they? Or are they? You see, if the... If the, if the the fighting men would have said, no, we're going to stay and protect where we should be. We have responsibility to our families. What would have happened? Two and a half tribes would have been de destroyed. Instead, the two and a half tribes led the way. And what happened to all, all their livestock and their property and their families and everybody else? What happened to them? Nothing but blessing for five plus years. And the enemy never attacked. I mean, it is the only thing that makes sense when, when um, what's his name? Uh, boy, my mind pulled a blank. Attacked with only 300 people. Gideon, thank you. I was thinking Joshua, I knew that wasn't right. When Gideon attacked with, with 300 people, and what, was, what were the weapons of warfare? Trumpets, pitchers, and torches. Serious? And the enemy got stupid. Didn't they? And they killed each other. You know what happened? Because God, why? Because God is always faithful to his promises. And so what we find here in verse 11, when he says, spread your protection out, 
over them, he's talking about what he's promised. Who is to receive the Lord's protection? Those who take refuge in you, who are rejoicing, who are singing for joy, because God is causing that. And what's the goal? What's the goal of this request? What's that? Yes! Look at the end of verse 11. That those who love your name may exalt Aunt Melba's toes healing. (laughs) Oh, that was bad, Tom. That was really bad. But good, that's good. That's not what it says. What does he say? That the Lord's name, that those who love your name may exalt in you, that, that those who love your name may be blown away by who you are. That they may just be so amazed that they just go on and on and on and on, exalting your name, proclaiming your name, spreading your fame, enthralled with who you are. That's the goal. That's the goal of David's prayer. The entirety of the prayer. Verse 12, For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Now we can't miss the point. That this didn't mean that David never had problems, right? We know that's not the case. But we also know that, that God worked in and through David, protected him. And what was his protection? His protection was ultimately to beware. Walking in his ways. Ultimately, that was his protection. Ultimately, that was his his blessing. It goes back to verse um, 8 again. It all kind of hinges on this statement in verse 8. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. The greatest protection God, even in the Old Testament, gave His people is they would know Him and know His way. And understand His righteousness. And be empowered to glorify Him. My goodness, it's totally contrary to how we think about prayer. How we think about God. Because as we said every week, the way we pray shows what we believe about God. As we consider the text... One of the things we can ask ourselves is, what do our prayers say about us and our view of God? We can ask ourselves, for example, what's really important to me in my praying? Is it righteousness? Is that what, what every prayer, everything about my prayer drips out? Righteousness? Desire for righteousness? The desire to know God? The desire to humbly submit before my God and my King? What about the results of my praying? Does the result of my praying 
Does the result look like people like me rejoicing? Not rejoicing over a healed toe. Rejoicing over God. Does it look like us forever sing for joy? Is that what it looks like? Important questions. Does it look like it results in God's name be exalted? Is that what it looks like? Answer prayer for us. Now, I'm going to close on this because we're over time, but let me just say, the answer to the study today, and if you, if you don't pick up on this, you've missed it completely. This is the most important thing. It should not be new to any of us. The, the answer to the, the, the dilemma that you and I see in our praying is not, I've got to pray better. Not the answer. It just isn't. The answer is not, I've got to be careful that my praying about Aunt Melba's big toes for God's glory. And I've got to be careful that, that um, when I pray about Aunt Melba's big toe, that I rejoice afterwards if she's healed, for example. I want you to understand, that is manipulation. That is an attempt at manipulating God. I just, if I pray better, then maybe God will do what I want. That's absolute manipulation. That's downright evil. Talk about putting yourself in the category of the wicked. <laughs> No, what's the, what, what, is, what is the solution to the dilemma? It's discovered right in the very beginning of the chapter. Right in the very beginning of the chapter, we are introduced to the solution to the dilemma. And it's simply said, for you are my God, my King and my God. That's the answer to the dilemma. When he says, for you are my King and my God, do you know what he's saying? We already talked about it, but he's also saying, he knows him. He knows him. He's learned about him. He understands what it means that he's the king. He understands what it means that he's my God. And he, he fully embraces that idea, those ideas. He accepts that. He loves that, that truth. He knows. He knows his king. We understand that, I hope, because how can I say he's my king when I don't know what he says? <laughs> is he really my king? How can I say he's my king when I don't know who he is? Not just what he says about my life and how to live, but he declares who he is. If I don't know what he says about himself, how can I say he's my king? I mean, I could say it. Words are cheap, right? I'm Superman. Words are cheap. How can you say God is your king? if we don't know who He is? How can I say Christ is my Savior when I don't know who He is? It doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't. The answer is the same answer we've seen all along, not just in our prayer study, but in all the rest of the studies. When we talked all the way back in Colossians and Mark, who is Christ? And what's the second question? Why is He so worthy of our worship? That is, He is my King. He is my God. It's, it's an understanding that I know Him as He's revealed Himself 
And the Spirit uses that and transforms me. How can I be led in the paths of righteousness if I don't know the God who created the paths? <laughs> that doesn't make a lick of sense. The answer is the same as it always has been. The point of the prayer in, in Psalm chapter 5 for our sake today is to show us and cause us to ask us ourselves the question, do I know God? Is He my King? Is He my Lord? Is He my God? What does the evidence say? What do my prayers say? Not that I need to pray better. You will pray better. I will pray better. I know my King. I know my God. I will. I don't need to be taught how to pray. Oh, I may need some tweaks, sure. When I know my God, when I know my King, then what happens is I pray according to who my God and my King is. And according to what my God and my King have said. And I'm perfectly fine when he works out his way. And when I'm not fine with that, that shows me very clearly that I've forgotten my king and my God. I need to cry out to him once again. And watch for him to demonstrate himself. Amen? And that's true biblical prayer. So let's pray. Lord, help us. You've promised to help us, so we ask You to help us. As redeemed people, I ask You to open our eyes again as we prayed every week to see. Help us to understand who You are. Help us to understand our Redeemer. Help us to understand the power of the Spirit at work in us as revealed in the Scriptures. Help us understand Your will as revealed in the Scriptures. Help us understand Your plan as You've revealed in the Scriptures. And Lord, help us change our hearts as You promised to do. Change our hearts so that we will love our King and our God. That we will trust our King and our God. Cause us to walk in the paths of righteousness. Deal with us accordingly. And as a result, cause us to rejoice and exalt in You. We've made excuses too long. We've prayed for too long for You to work with our kingdom. So Lord, help us to long for Your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Change our hearts. In Your name I pray. Amen.